Welcome everybody back to KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Hope that this segment finds everybody healthy and well, and we are joined today by one of my very favorite players of all time, one of the, the greats in our sports history. He is the one and only Mats Vlander. And Mats, the last time we got together and did this was on your 55th birthday back in August. I, we talked then. I watched you play the McEnroe Brothers down in Australia. You came to Denver for the USPTA Intermountain Conference, which was two months ago, and suddenly the world has completely changed since we talked. How, how crazy is this? Well, it's obviously the craziest time uh, in my lifetime, that's for sure. Uh, thank you for having me, Andy, first of all, as you say. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you start appreciating uh, the small things in life, or maybe you should call them the big things in life, which is health and family and friends um, and communication uh, and social interaction. So I think we're, if there's anything good that comes out of it, I think maybe, especially to the younger generation, realize that, wow, I really need to have friends and meet friends and hang out with friends. And even my parents are kind of cool to hang out with sometimes. It's kind of a huge reboot for all of our lives, we're all kind of taking a collective deep breath and doing the same thing you're talking about, which is kind of rechecking ourselves and our, our priorities. But when we look at the sport of tennis, Matt, we're seeing some some looming changes. There's talk of professional tennis being played in front of fans. There's a new normal that is on the horizon with respect to the way we teach tennis. Are you concerned when this is over, and hopefully sooner than later, about any long-term scar tissue or damage to the sport of tennis that will be endured as a result of what we're going through now? I think everybody is concerned when it comes to your your uh, trade, so to speak, um, because usually it involves uh, being close to other people and communicating or, or competing against or working together with. So I think we're, yeah, I really have no idea. I think tennis, in a way, is uh, on the amateur level in, in pretty... It's a lucky sport in a way because you can be, I believe it's 22 yards away from one another if you're on either side of the net on the baseline. Obviously, the problem becomes when you touch the tennis ball with your hand and you, you use that to toss the ball up in your serve. But in terms of just hitting the tennis ball, I think tennis is a sport that's going to be okay because there is not that uh, physical contact. But obviously, uh, that's a minor Minor detail, I think uh, we have, I really don't have any idea of where we're going. Are we stopping the handshake? Let's talk about that. Um, are we stopping the gatherings with uh, more than 10 people in a small room? I have no idea where we're heading. I think that uh, it could be a, a not a wake-up call to professional tennis, but maybe, hey, we better get together here, the ATP, the WTA, and the International Tennis Federation, and all the Grand Slams. We better uh, start working together with amateur tennis and, and the different professional organizations, and, and uh, what is best for this game? What can we do or get away with? Or uh, Definitely working together is something that I'm, I'm hoping that the governing bodies of our sport will finally sit down at the same table and, and communicate. So, Matt, you're one of the guys that, that's really looked upon from lots of different 
levels of tennis and groups of, of players and professionals. A, you're still relevant among the pros that are playing professionally because you're out there in and amongst them. You play uh, on the Legends Tour and you're a tennis analyst and now you've actually um, evolved into uh, the, the teaching pro world as well. What advice do you have for players and coaches alike with respect to how long we should wait before we try to even remotely enter into a sense of normalcy again? Oh, I, I mean, obviously, I have no idea. I think it's going to be uh, months uh, before we can we can start giving uh, group lessons. Uh, I think you can maybe start go ahead and give a one-on-one private lesson sooner because uh, the distance between the, the teaching pro and the other player. I think playing a singles uh, match or just hitting with one person on either side, like I said, I think that's going to be okay uh, in not too distant of a future. But to me, it's a little deeper than that. I think that we realize, I think, when, when we don't have the opportunity to play all the time, I think we realize that tennis uh, is a sport where you can learn something from the sport, its rules and its etiquette that you can apply to normal life. And and obviously, when I say that, it's not hitting the forehand cross court with a little extra spin or the, the, the big serve ace, but it's the, again, interaction between the two people, the interaction between you and, and the game itself and things that you have to do in between the time you hit the ball and the ball comes back to the, your side of the net. So I think we realize that it's not going to last forever, potentially. And, uh, when we're out there, we better take care of the things and try and learn uh, the rules and regulations and etiquette of the sport that is tennis. It's different in every sport, but in tennis, there are some fundamentals that I think we, we oversee and forget because we're so interested in the, uh, the end result, which is how good a shot was it that I hit. You know, that's a good point, Matt. And one of the things that I've always admired about your philosophy about teaching and, and your style on the court with players uh, is that you're you're very much about cooperative practicing and you you give a lot of credit to yourself and to the results that you got as a player because of your ability to to practice in an efficient way. And and really if you look at the way you profess players should practice it almost makes a lot of sense in the way they should conduct themselves to, to stay healthy through all of this as well. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on what you see as proper practice habits versus some of what you see out there. Um, yeah, I can. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, pretty set in the way that I practice. Uh, but again, I think that when you're practicing, you, it, it's, you're helping each other out. You're cooperating with the other person on the other side. Uh, keeping in mind that w- you also have to be selfish and you have to worry about what you're doing on your side of the court. But uh, if you keep hitting winners or keep missing, the chances are that other person uh, is not going to call you in the morning and ask to hit again. So I always thought tennis is a conversation between two people. And if I start my, my conversation with a rude first opening line, the chances are you will stand up and leave the table. So I like to to think of it as a, as a team effort. I mean, I always had a pretty easy time dealing with losing tennis matches. Uh, and I've heard a lot of people say, well, it's so tough. It's an individual sport. And I was, I think, always able to tell myself, well, it's an individual sport in the, in the way that I'm the one hitting the ball. But I've got a lot of players in my team. And I can bench my 
my forehand inside out. I can bench my slight backhand. I can bench my my uh, flat first serve because they're not working today or they don't have a place in this situation that I'm in, whether I'm practicing with somebody who's, who is a lower level player than me or or somebody who's better than me. It's easier to take a, a loss or take a bad day when you can put a finger on what was it that didn't work. It wasn't me personally. It was my footwork on my forehand. Well, let's go and work on the footwork on my forehand. So again, I think it's about uh, getting better at controlling the things you can control. And then literally the ball striking is heads or tails. Sometimes they go in, sometimes they don't. But I think that's how we in Sweden did it. Uh, obviously, having seen Bjorn Borg uh, practice and having practiced with him when I was just 14, 15, 16, and he was number one in the world, the grace that he had, the generosity to hit with us, and the, what we learned from him that is in practice, that obviously you're trying to play as good as you can. But I'm not trying to win my practice match uh, at all costs. I'm trying to work on a few different things. And uh, I always leave in a good mood. And if I lost, then, hey, maybe next time I will not come to the net as much. I, I, you always learn something. So I think we in Sweden uh, with uh, Stefan Edberg, Anders Jarrett, Joachim Newstrom, Mikael Pernsport, Kent Carlson. I mean, we had, I've been looking at the um, men's professional uh, tennis guide from the 80s, and they used to, used to have a, a photograph of the top 20 men on the, on the cover. Um, and um, in 86, 87, 88, and 89, there's six Swedish faces in the top 20. Uh, and they varied. There's about nine or 10 of us, but there was always six players in the top 20 and we're from a small country we're all about the same age and we really work together as a team and yes we ended up not loving the other guy if we played each other in a big match but it was a team effort and we all realized we are all going to benefit from one of us breaking out of the pack uh, because we can follow in his footsteps it was one of the great generations of professional tennis in history it was the the Swedish group that spawned forth from the greatness of Bjorn Borg and my guest today, the great Mats Wielander, put his practice sessions with Bjorn Borg to good use, winning seven major singles championships, winning the Wimbledon doubles title in 86 with Joachim Nyström. I'm not going to get that wrong this time. And uh, Davis Cups and, and, and everything else. Now, Mats, on social media lately, I guess people have a lot of time on their hands. I've seen a lot of people making posts about the great rivalries in the history of the sport of tennis. And I've seen the the Nadal-Federer-Djokovic era mentioned among those great rivalries, but to me, those guys represent more of a three-man era, maybe the greatest era of all time, your Swedish group that you just mentioned notwithstanding. But when I think about rivalries in the sport of tennis, I think of like a McEnroe-Lendl, who were two guys that clearly didn't like each other, maybe still don't, and played very, very differently, had beautiful contrasting styles to watch. When you think about some of the great rivalries in tennis history, who comes to mind? Yeah, I think that obviously McEnroe, uh, uh, Bjorn Borg would be up there uh, in the sort of top two, top three. Um, I think Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal has had obviously had some classic matches, but uh, more than it being big finals, I think it's the contrast of style between uh, Federer and Nadal. Nadal being left-handed, that always helps in a rivalry. Uh, Federer having a better chance on the faster courts and Nadal winning nearly everything on slower courts, I think that helps rivalries. 
and then of course Djokovic with both of them are great. But yeah, Stefan Edberg and Boris Becker was a great rivalry, very similar in style. Me and Ivan Lendl, uh, we had a good rivalry going. We played in, in five Grand Slam finals. When we played, there was no way of knowing if who was going to win on, uh, on any surface. It didn't really matter if it was grass, hardcourt, or clay. Um, so I think that we've kind of lost that a little bit because there have been so dominant Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal. And I think some of it's because the three of them are pushing each other. They're incredible athletes. They have incredible match temperament. And some of it also has to come down to the physics of the sport, where the surfaces seem to be uh, playing more uh, at a more similar speed. Uh, so I think the rivalry between the three of them seem to be, seems to be that one guy gets ahead and on top for a year, and then he wins five or six maybe in a row or maybe loses one, and then the other guy figures something out. And I think with Djokovic and Nadal, that's uh, more apparent, where Nadal was beating Djokovic early because of the physical strength, and Djokovic comes back and has this run of seven or eight in a row. That did not happen in our days because grass promoted a servant volley style, so suddenly I was in trouble against Boris Becker, John Mackin, or Stefan Edberg. And a couple of weeks before that, we were at the French Open, where it was played so slow in those days, you couldn't really come to the net that much. And then I was beating them. So I think that the rivalry has changed. And I think we are now really wanting to see the two best players in the finals of all the Grand Slams. That was not the case in the 80s. You were just hoping that the contrast of style and match temperament was going to be a good fit, or like you said, Mack and Orlando, a really, really bad fit. And then you look at maybe something that could be a blend of the two, and that would be Sampras and Agassi. Uh, obviously, they brought out the best in each other, but there was definitely some tension there between those two. I'm sure you had a, a good close look at that rivalry because they were playing when you were still playing, but then when you became an analyst and a commentator uh, and you had you know, kind of... Uh, set the racket on the wall. They were they were still out there doing their thing. How, what, what did you see with that rivalry that you liked? Yeah, I think with Agassi and Sampras, I, I lost. Uh, well, I, I played Agassi when he was 15 years old the first time. The last time I beat him was at the semi, so the French Open in 1988 in five sets, um, six love to me in the fifth set because Andre was cramping, and he claims when he me and when he wants to remember that that was the last tennis match he won because he wasn't 100% physically ready. And then, of course, I played Pete Sampras in the U.S. Open in 1989. I was the defending champion. And these guys were both 18, 19 years old. Uh, and uh, early on, we weren't that impressed with them. We thought, yeah, good ball strikers, both of them. Uh, great serve from Pete. Unbelievable return from uh, Andre. But do they really know how to actually play the game of tennis or are they just hitting balls. It turns out that they both knew and they both learned so much tactically that I think those two for me are the two that certainly made me realize that my time at the top is going to be short-lived because they're coming uh, and they're about six, seven, eight years younger than me and I should have been able to play with them when I was in my late 20s but they took the game to a different level in terms of the physicality and they really were the ones that grew up with an, uh, an oversized racket. They could hit the ball hard from both sides. Of course, Pete had a, an incredible serve, the best ever, I believe. So 
that was like the wake-up call for me. Okay, I better get my wins in now because this generation is at a different level completely. It reminds me a little bit of what Novak Djokovic has been able to come out and do to Roger Federer. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, that early on, Yvonne Lendl made the comment about Agassi, this kid's just a forehand and a haircut. Did he end up ever walking that one back at any point in time that you ever heard? Uh, Yvonne Lendl doesn't walk anything back, no. <laughs> okay. uh, he, I've never heard him uh, walk anything back or, or apologizing for hitting you in the chest when he, when he was uh, sort of running for a big forehand. He was the first guy to to uh, introduce that play, that if you can't hit the passing shot, just hit it as hard as you can at the guy at the net. McEnroe obviously was up there a lot, and he got hit a lot, but any, any apologies from Mr. Lendl? No. But I think that there is so much respect for, uh, for all of uh, the guys in the 80s from the rest of us because of the competitive spirit from Ivan Lendl, who took tennis physically to a different level in terms of working out, Martina Navratilova was the on the women's side, the player that did that. Um, so we all have mutual respect. McEnroe and Lendl, they do get along these days. Um, so I, I think that we have been able to bury the, the hatchet and we've, we've moved on. And I think what we all have realized, and this is a very strange realization for all of us, is that we actually are not as selfish as we thought we were. Uh, we were not playing just for the money or the ranking points or the titles. We were playing because we love the way it feels to hit a tennis ball close to the middle of the racket. We le- love the uh, problem-solving part of trying to figure out different tactics on different surfaces. And we just have a love for the sport that I really hope that the guys that are playing today will have forever. Compare that to maybe a Pete Sampras, who you don't see around that much. Uh, Andre Agassi, who you don't see around that much either. But obviously, Andre is, is a great entrepreneur in, in helping uh, more unfortunate kids through schools and playing tennis and whatnot. So he's an entrepreneur in a different way. But um, I, I'm not sure that we're going to have that uh, passion instilled in the players that have grown up playing tennis from four or five years old and never really played another sport and they went to a tennis academy and on and on and on. So um, when you see John McEnroe out there analyzing, you realize like, wow, that really surprised me because I thought he was never going to talk about somebody else's game, but he does. And you mentioned Andre Agassi is an entrepreneur and he certainly has done what he's done with the charter school in Las Vegas, but we've also seen him, it seems like recently, Matt's out on the court working with Djokovic for a period of time and maybe most recently Grigor Dimitrov. What have you seen from Andre as a coach at that level? It seems like at times, uh, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but there's been a little bit of a clash of egos at times. Has that maybe been something that some of these players have to be careful of when they bring on a former great like an Agassi or a Lendl or a Becker, you know, blending in with a Federer or a Murray and those types of guys? Mm, I think, yeah, I don't think it's easy. I definitely don't think it's easy. And I don't think that uh, we we on the outside uh, have any idea what it is that Andre's message is. Um, I think with Andre Agassi, for example, he came out, and I, I, I agree with Ivan Lendl that he was nothing but a big forehand and a, and a great haircut. Um, <laughs> but when he ran into Brad Gilbert, uh, I think he realized what tennis is about, and it's not really about just you. It's about trying to trying to find weaknesses in your opponent, and, and which then suddenly makes tennis 
uh, bigger because it's part of life. And I think Andre, as a coach, is most probably talking more about life and life skills and, and how do you solve this problem and that problem. And I think some players are more interested in technique uh, and uh, definite tactics. And some players are, are, will benefit from the bigger picture, which is always show up. Don't try uh, and, and overplay or, or don't ever attempt beating yourself by missing or risking too much. I worked with Marat Safin for a year, uh, and I think the only thing that I taught Marat was when we're practicing and you're only bringing four rackets to the practice court, please don't break your racket by <laughs> trying to aim at the fence post because you are eventually going to run out of rackets, and I don't want you to play with my racket. So, and I think he learned that. I think he learned something about trying not to beat yourself, trying always beat the guys that you're supposed to beat and then hope you have a chance against the guys that are better than you. So I think it just depends. The, the player coach, it's more about a personality uh, uh, fit when it comes to what you enjoy about playing tennis. It could be technique, could be the mental part, or or could be just the, the conversations during dinner or during breakfast about something completely different than tennis. Well, those of us that have had the great pleasure, as I have, to work alongside you on the same tennis court and watch you do what you do, all of the pros, certainly in the inner mountain part of the country and, and, and in the United States in general and around the world, I, I'm sure feel the same way. Matt, you've kind of made the commitment to spending a little bit more time at home and, and, and procuring some things uh, there in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I know you want to start doing a little bit more of that. Why don't you tell our listeners what you're trying to do and what, what, what's happening in Sun Valley, Idaho, that maybe some of them that are listening might want to uh, look into participating in as, as uh, things start to return back to normal, hopefully sooner than later. Sun Valley, Idaho is obviously the, the kind of the stage name for this area. Um, uh, I am in Haley, Idaho, which is about a 20-minute drive from Sun Valley, 20 minutes from our world-famous Bald Mountain Ski Resort. I, I, ha I own a, a tennis business or a tennis uh, indoor business with three indoor courts called Gravity Fitness and Tennis. I've always wanted to be involved in a club. Uh, this This club came up for... Uh, for sale in terms of the business part. We rent the facility. I am interested in working at the grassroots level. I'm interested in, in going out to, to clubs in the Intermountain region. I love the, the drive you have to make around uh, these parts of the world. Here, it's a situation where most players are not thinking about turning pro at tennis. I think they're the teaching of the Intermountain tennis players is slightly different. I think it's more about life skills and what you can learn from tennis that you can apply to regular life. And we're always going to have talents that have a chance to turn pro from everywhere in the world and in this region as well. But um, I would love to see people come to our area and, and come and ski in the morning and hit some tennis balls with me and, and some other local players. Uh, in the afternoon or come fly fishing in the summer in the morning and come and hit tennis balls with me. So I have traveled enough with uh, my oldest son, Carl, uh, to the Intermountain Tennis Tournament in junior tournaments. I've traveled a lot with um, all four of my kids during their ice hockey time at, at the high school uh, in Haley and Ketchum. So I love the attitude that people have towards sports 
in the Intermountain uh, region. It's way more relaxed, way more reminiscent of what I went through as a kid. A lot of kids are playing more than one sport. Uh, a lot of kids are great athletes. They're just maybe slightly behind in some of them because they're dividing their time up. But in the long run, that makes you a better athlete and you can choose to pick up whatever you want. So I'm full on a multi-sport um, I love tennis more now, I think, than, than ever before. So, yeah, I would love to have people come and come and give us a call. GravityFitnessAndTennis.com is our website. And uh, I, I'm just so excited about h- hanging out with you, Andy, working with you, uh, going to the uh, Intermountain Conference that you so kindly invited me to in Denver and, and meeting, you know, a high school coach from a little school in Boise who was there when my son Carl played in high school eight, nine years ago. Uh, and it's just so cool to meet people that love the sport for what it is and have a passion for it. And I am with them at the same level. I just happen to have won a lot more uh, in my other lifetime. But today I'm, I'm a coach. I'm trying to, the more I play, the more I feel like I can learn. The more I know about it, the more I realize how many weaknesses I have as a player, but also as a coach. So uh, it's a never-ending search for uh, the answer, which sounds like a life lesson. Well, one of the weaknesses that you clearly don't have, Matt, is that you are truly one of the great gentlemen in our sports history. And I've told you this before, and I know you're going to eventually get tired of me saying it, but it is music to the ears of everyone in Intermountain to hear you speak about wanting to be so involved in what we've got going on because I assure you the feeling is far more than mutual and I thank you for your graciousness with your time that you take with me to do these kinds of interviews and with what you're doing uh, at Gravity and then uh, in Intermountain and we're more and more excited by the day to be more and more involved with you so thanks again and hopefully stay stay healthy and well and our best to your wife Sonia and Carl and your other kids and uh, that they stay healthy and well during this as well. Andy, thank you very much. Same to you, same to everyone that's listening. Yes, be selfish by staying home, but, but be kind and be safe, and I can't wait to see everyone out on the road uh, in our beautiful Intermountain region. So, Andy, thanks a lot, man. You got it, Matt. Thank you. Midnight, I hope.